we have favorite experiences that we've had working with cameras and and for those of us who make cameras one of the things that we're looking for is a better experience in one way or another so i'm gonna flip this and i'm going to ask you about a camera that you used a lot and hated what was the worst experience you had working with a camera i don't know i I, I'm pretty. I pretty much like them all. Uh, I, I'm trying to think. Well, so no. I mean, there are individual ones that that you know bother me in one way or another. But it, I don't really have it in for any of them. Uh, okay. All right. I think here's what here's what really annoys me: uh, a camera that's completely automatic and takes crappy pictures. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> like, I don't mind it so much if if you have some some kind of tools to fight back and, and try and improve the quality, but if all it is is pushing a button and the picture that comes out is is not good, and I have I have one like that. It's a it's a Minolta Weathermatic. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I have think, one of those. I know. I think Graham on Sunny Sixteen complained about the same camera because pretty much all you can do is push the button. It does. Mine does have two different lenses, but either one the picture the pictures are pretty much always out of focus and uh, badly exposed and usually blurry motion blur as well so <laughs> yeah and graham young from uh you know the the uh what is our podcast name <laughs> the homemade camera podcast will concur with that although here's what I, i'm gonna uh we were my wife and i last summer took this like um it, it's a a dual pontoon like personal watercraft it's got a you know like a normal outboard motor on it but uh it's something cat and i can't remember what it is but we took a tour uh with a with a group um uh around saint simon's island and i took a picture with that weathermatic duel and um got a picture that had more views and more likes than any picture that i've ever had on Flickr. it got a hundred thousand views get out of town yeah and it was and i hate that camera. <laughs> i'm with you on that uh I, I don't think i would necessarily choose that one because i didn't really have a whole lot of expectations i mean i obviously i took it along because i was out in the water and it's weathermatic right so it's not so much a camera as a roulette machine that you know that you're you're gambling and in yeah. your case it sounds it sounds like you you actually you know and the funny you, thing you is you won you won the lottery on, on yeah and i didn't particularly like the picture that much it was uh of a um a tree you know a a, a tree that was driftwood it was the trunk of a tree that was driftwood and, and the um you know came, went down the trunk and then it it uh splayed out into the root system and it was in really harsh black and white, and uh, so. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I mean, so. Well, I haven't given the camera enough of a chance, but I guess what I'm really saying is that I don't like cameras that are automatic if the pictures aren't appealing, and and I'm you know perfectly happy to use a box camera sometimes, but. I think that's the most frustrating thing is if, yeah, there's I mean, nothing you can do. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes there, you know, we have just absolutely no uh, affinity, right? You know, we have no affinity for a camera. One, I would say that, the, you know, I wasn't really sure what I would respond with 
for this, but when you said an automatic camera that you don't like the results on, uh, I'm going to say um, I did not like the Olympus Mew 2 or Stylus Epic. I had a Stylus Epic. Well, people and love that thing. I know. I know. And uh, I took a bunch of pictures with it. And it was like, eh. They, I, they felt soulless to me. I didn't, yeah. I didn't really feel much with that um, camera. But, they, you know... Uh, it has a sharp lens. Yes, the lens is sharp. I want something more than a sharp lens. Uh, I had a I had a point and shoot Canon underwater camera that was just like the little plastic red buoy of a thing that uh, you know it was it was supposed to be a good quality camera, but it was fully automatic. You just pushed a button. Fairly wide lens. I took that on some mountaineering trips, and just it was perfect because I didn't have to think and I didn't have time to think. It took really great photographs, um, but then it just broke and stopped working. But it, it was, I was perfectly happy with it. So they're not all bad. It's just that, right. yeah, yeah, maybe that, the, and also the, to be fair, the weathermatic's really old and it's probably just worn out. Yeah, that could be, that could be. I had a Minolta uh, that I gave to a student of mine uh, to use. Um, it was just a, a lending and she took it out, took one shot, and then the, and the shutter died. <laughs> that was horrible. Oh, well. Uh, so, are you ready to start the Homemade Camera Podcast? Sure. is a viewfinder and what's it what's its purpose well its primary purpose is like built into the name and it's it helps you to frame the image uh and you know different lenses give you different fields of view and on cameras where you're not looking well i guess whether you're looking through the lens or not it's all a viewfinder um and the job of the viewfinder is to show you the edges of what will become a photograph Sometimes there's other info in there, like uh, the exposure value, shutter speed, what the aperture is set at, so you can kind of tell what the camera is doing without taking your eye away from the scene. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, we've got a whole bunch of different types of viewfinders. Um, uh, so you want to go over a couple? Um, well, like <clears throat> there are a lot of different ways. So some of them function different ways, um, but starting with how you use them, the biggest difference are is between ones where you hold it up to your eye and look straight ahead or ones where you're looking down at the top of the camera where there's a ground glass reflecting the view through the lens in a mirror. And that's a waist-level viewfinder. And those, on all types of cameras, in those cases, those cases you're looking always through the lens um, but because there's a mirror involved, the, the image is reversed left to right. So it's a little confusing at first because you you instinctively want to turn to the right, uh, and then the view the view moves to the left because you're looking in a mirror. It's kind of like learning how to back up a car. Um, but once you're used to it, you can there's sort of th switch throws in your brain, and when you're peering into the viewfinder, you know that left is right and right is left, just like backing up a car or learning to back up with a boat trailer on the back of a car or something like that. Same same kind of thing. You get used to it after a while. Um, Eye-level finders, all kinds. Sometimes you're looking through the lens. Sometimes you're just looking through a, a tube at the world. Um, but it's it's showing you essentially or roughly where the image will be. 
when you take the picture. Okay, so there are some also, like you, don't you have one of those old uh, KMZ turret um, uh, finders that, that sits on the external? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a turret finder, and they, what makes them different is that there are, in this case, five different viewfinders, and you can put, present one to your eye by rotating the turret. Um, and the, each one is an actual tiny little lens system that mimics the focal length of a different lens. So they're typically from the days of rangefinder cameras, which usually only had about five focal lengths available between, say, 30, 28 millimeter and 135 millimeter. Those are usually the range that you would find for a rangefinder camera. And so this one viewfinder gives you all five on that, uh, that range. Or if you uh, have a Leica, three view, three different lenses, a 35, uh, a 50, and a 90, and that's all that they wanted to let you have. Well, in the beginning, they also <laughs> later had a bigger, wider choice than that. Um, but anyway, so the, the nice thing about those is that because, so think of it this way, when you look through a straight tube viewfinder without any lenses, without any lenses, you're just seeing the world through your eyes. So you're essentially getting a four, about a 42 millimeter focal length view of the world, which is what our eyes match. Uh, and then the viewfinder is just saying, well, this is the piece of the world that will be cut off you know, by the edges of the film. So that's the simplest viewfinder. Now, to make a, a, a longer focal length viewfinder, you can just put a mask in front of that, showing that you're going to see a smaller piece of the world. But when you go to a wide angle lens, it doesn't work. You can't make your eye see anything wider than 42 millimeters so, uh, focal length. So then you really ideally want a lens in your viewfinder that is also a wide-angle lens to, to show your eye what the world will look like through a wider lens. Uh, so when you get into anything above 40 or 50 or 40 or 50 millimeters, you need an optical viewfinder to, to see the actual view. Um, or you need to look through the lens itself, like in a single-lens reflex. Uh, either way, you're going to see what the lens uh, sees. In. So the nice thing about these rotating viewfinders is that there's a separate lens that actually gives you the actual focal length view of 28 millimeters, 35 millimeters, 50 millimeters. Uh, I think this one's got 85, uh, maybe 90 and 135. Wow. Okay. And, and it is kind of good to have the, the high, uh, focal length ones too, because you can use a mask to crop for your 42 millimeter eye down to 135, but it's a tiny, tiny viewfinder then, whereas the one with a lens in it, enlarges the view so that you can see it pretty well and and that um, was what i was just going to ask because i yeah. um i bought a viewfinder off of ebay and i forget what brand it is hang on one second i'll make a bunch of noise and open the door here and get it okay and it is um here hang on a second oh it's a helios so it's russian as well and it has um i'm gonna look through it and see what it has a 135, an 85, a... I'm trying to... It'll say right. 50 or 5. Yeah. It says... Oh, and 35. Uh, 35. It doesn't actually have 50. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. So, so 35, 135, and 85? Right. Just three. And Just there's three. there's a lens, lens for each one. And there's... Right, right. And you hmm. can... 
you can pretty much, uh, so well, the, my point on that is it really is, oh no, it's not a lens for each one. This is a single, um, oh, single device. Masks. Those right. are masks. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a Leica viewfinder. That's the same idea with the masks that close down. And for the 35 millimeter, it's a little bit of a cheat. Um, if there's no lens, because, because that's slightly wider than you can really see with the naked eye. But, um, you know, I don't know if there's no lens at all, there might be a little bit of a lens. So it might start you at 35. Um, if there's, if there's a, if there is a little bit of glass in there, that's oh, changing, yeah, changing yeah, the yeah, focal yeah. length a little bit, it's probably set up so that you're seeing a 35 millimeter view of the world. And then it's just masking it down for the for the real close up. And I bet they're tiny, aren't they? Yeah, they're very tiny. Yeah, so Absolutely. you could make you could maybe like track a bird as a dot in this little tiny view. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. So wide. not that useful. Uh, the but they they are smaller, much more streamlined than a turret finder. And in and if you're someone like me who's never going to use a one thirty five millimeter lens on a rangefinder camera, then I don't care. I'll just use the thirty five, and that's a perfectly good uh, viewfinder to have. Um, yeah, I'm with and you I, on that, totally. And then, you know, here's another thing. The missing focal lengths are 50 and 40, right? Right. Well, those, you don't need a viewfinder. You just need a frame. So, yeah, you, you could, just see. You could just create yeah. a sports finder for those or, you know, whatever. Right, right, exactly. So, okay, so those sit usually on the cold shoe um, of the of the camera, which kind of puts them a distance away from the taking lens. Uh, and so there is an issue with that versus a built-in lens, right? Or built-in viewfinder, right? Well, the, the main difference is whether you're looking through the lens or not. If you're looking through the actual lens, like in a, any kind of reflex, single-lens reflex camera, right. then there's you're seeing exactly what the lens sees. But any viewfinder, even built-in viewfinders that are a little bit in, you know, a little bit of a different location than where the lens is, uh, even, you know, a little bit, the the view you get is slightly different uh sure. and that that uh what you know we've spoken about it before but that error is called parallax because you're seeing a parallel sight line to the one the lens sees and i think that uh in, there are two ways to deal with it one way is that you're just supposed to think in your head oh i'm close to something therefore i have to tilt the camera a little bit Right. So the lens is pointing where the viewfinder is pointing, kind of. So you can kind of fudge. And that works okay, but it's better the more sophisticated ones have some system for shifting the view to match what the lens would see as you focus in closer. And they go from real primitive ones where you can actually turn a dial right on the viewfinder that has uh, you know, a, a distance in feet all the way to infinity mm -hmm. uh, and to some really crude ones that you just sort of like the the one of the ones I have you just sort of twist it a little bit past there's like a mark for close up essentially oh, okay. you, just, you know and it sort of gives you close up and normal any distant subject your parallax is not going to be a noticeable problem it's only when things are close uh, and, to the camera that and, it's a problem and there's a, a few built-in viewfinders that I've used um where it actually does a little tilting as the um as you focus in closely well, most most of them have a mask or the ground glass itself actually moves uh diagonally right so the frame the frame is relocating itself within the viewfinder view diagonally closer to the lens as you 
as you get closer to the as you focus closer to the image so it's just a mechanical linkage to the focusing mechanism in the camera but it does largely compensate for parallax uh, because it moves the frame over and you see that in twin lens reflex high quality rangefinders like leica um my uh konica auto s2 has that feature yes and there are there are two le- levels one level it just shifts the frame but the really sophisticated ones including the konica actually change the size as well because as you get closer oh, okay it it not only is shifting the point of view but a little bit cropping um because the field of the if you think about it as you focus a lens it gets farther away from the film and the cone of light being projected back is showing a slightly different view um it's actually cropped more as the lens gets farther away so you have a you need the viewfinder frame to shrink as you get closer to the subject okay and the real the really fancy ones do that and one way you can spot it is usually the bright lines in in the viewfinder aren't connected at the corners because the the thing has to slide so that the lines actually get closer together um and and that's one way you can spot a really sophisticated uh uh, parallax correction yeah yeah i haven't uh i i don't think i've noticed that part where it actually like it zooms a little bit uh or i should say, yeah you, you don't notice say. it until someone tells you about it and then yeah. you can see it happening so my my the uh, i had a borrowed Bronica rf that was a great camera rf645 that was a great camera that had that type of viewfinder i think like it does i mean i would think so and you know it's not a huge deal really because uh, I don't do a lot of close-up kind of work, but, you know, that kind of intermediate, when you just want someone in the foreground and you want to get their face in the picture, you know, that, it can make a difference. It's right. Useful. So uh, I just picked a, uh, a Leica M2 off the shelf. And I was just going to add that there are primitive versions of this. So some of the old sports finders, which we haven't discussed, but that's just a wire frame and then usually a little loop or something you put your eye up to, which is basically just getting your eye the right distance away from a simple wire frame so that that wire frame will represent what the photo is going to look like. And those sometimes have a way that you can uh, change the distance between the, the view point and the frame to adjust for parallax. It changes the angle and the distance. And there's often it's just a simple sliding scale. There's one that's you can often find very cheaply that was made for Hasselblad's. Uh, and it has... It has multiple frame lines. It also has this parallax adjustment slider. And it's worth having one even if you don't use it, uh, just as as a something to copy when you want to invent one of your own. Right. So uh, so I pulled out an M2, and I saw no parallax adjustment at all in that one. It's a 1953 camera, but I mean, but they've been making rangefinders forever at that point. Um, but no, I think, I think it may have showed up a little later. I don't yeah. know of any, yeah, well, no, I don't know of any from that era. Well, I, I pulled out also. Oh, uh, except, oh wait, I am going to interrupt because there is a much older camera that had a really ingenious version of that. There was a, a twin lens reflex made, I think in the 1930s by Voigtlander where the top lens tilts down as you focus. Wow. That so, would be a Voigtlander. So it's it? actually completely changing the, the field of view of the upper lens in the in such a way that it corrects for parallax. And in, in it, when you have the the viewfinder directly above uh, the taking lens, that's an advantage because you only have to correct parallax in in one plane. 
a lot of, you know, if it's offset, it's a diagonal shift. But even so, with twin lens reflexes, if you get too close, um, you're going to cut the bottom off. The, you know, your, what you see is going to have its bottom cut off by the, the view of the lower lens. Um, and, and that's that. I've never seen it on any other camera, but this really yeah. high-end t- twin lens from way back then. You know, and, and I'm going to go a bit off topic as, uh, for a moment there. You know, if those engineers at uh, Voigtlander were working today, like if if that company survived the 80s and those people who are who are designing those amazing cameras in, you know, the 30s to the 50s, wouldn't it, I, I would be such a fan. I'd be lining up for for those cameras so i i mean yeah. I, I i love all those so well you know because cosina who bought the voigtlander name has actually right. put out many of the most interesting I sort agree. of post post digital film cameras uh they've done some really good ones so. right you're right they uh they designed that uh the one that's fuji branded um excuse me the six by seven bessa two i think they call it or excuse me the uh, Bessa no, two old, one. Bessa 2 is an older actual, oh, actual Voigtlander, but maybe it's Cos- a Bessa 3. Cosina did make a, a, an advanced Bessa, yeah. which Fuji also sold, and right. it's a fantastic camera. It's still very expensive, yeah, uh, hard to get. But I want to say that um, the the the, Cos- the other Cosina stuff. I mean, we use the one that's sort of a, a, a like a Challenger, and right. they're really nice. Yes. They're excellent cameras as well. But I think remember that Epson RD one. Right. That was the first digital rangefinder. That was built by Cosina. I I have an eBay alert for RD ones, um, uh, you know, and I would probably get it and be just disappointed, just like all my other digital cameras. But uh, no, 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 I, I bet it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you on I'm with you on that. So, uh, so here, let me. Uh, so I pulled off. Uh, I grabbed an M2, like an M2, and I saw no parallax correction at all. But the uh, like a CL, which was, you know, co-designed with Minolta, uh, in the seventies, it, right. it had, it has a full shift. It doesn't do any zooming, but that whole, um, image shifts, including, um, the shutter speed values across the top and the light meter on the side. Yeah. So, or the, and I, and I think the, the recent, I think the recent model like us have yeah. the, the full correction as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. So, uh, so, okay. So the, you know, we've got the feature or, and the issue of the parallax and parallax correction. Um, one of the things that I love about a viewfinder and, and, and the revolution that Leica had with a, with a viewfinder camera, um, that was, that gave, showed a wider angle view than, you know, your normal eye, um, view was that you could see outside the frame. Yeah. Well, anytime a, that a viewfinder is separate, it's not through the lens. You have the opportunity to make it show a bigger view right? and then have a frame lines marked off within it. And that's my favorite kind of viewfinder because you, you can see a big picture and then pick the best part to put your frame over. And, and it makes composition a much more powerful and direct experience. I find looking through a single lens reflex, it's like peering through a telescope or a t- toilet paper tube you're, or binoculars. You're, you're like, if your subject isn't right there, you're kind of groping around in the dark trying to find what, you know, what it is you want to frame. And that's a disadvantage. Right. 
Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you on that. So let's talk a little bit about um, single lens reflex cameras. Um, now they obviously have a viewfinder system that is, you know, based on uh, the pentaprism uh, at, that bounces the light around enough so that you end up looking at it right way up and right way left to right, you know, uh, so you see... Right, so the prisms un- undoes the mirror's reversing effect. Right, and the and the upside down of the light um, coming Going through, through lens, and bouncing right. off the... Yeah, right. So, um, you know, the great advantage, what people love about SLRs and loved about SLRs from day one is the fact that when you look through the lens, you're or when you look through the viewfinder, you're looking through the lens. So what the lens can see is what you can see. And uh, so, I mean, you know, there's, you know, once again, I'm I'm not a huge SLR fan, but there's no denying that that has a huge advantage in a lot of situations. Yep. However, one of the things, one of the disadvantages of that, that people, especially early on, um, don't understand, and this is this is one of the things that I concentrate on when I teach um, digital photography, is that you are seeing exactly what that lens sees, except you are seeing it wide open. You know, it, it right. you you unless well, you are you are with the more the, the newer cameras, which which automatically keep the, right. the lens wide open no matter what aperture you've selected. Right. So so let's say nineteen sixty five on. So right. as long as I've been alive on, um, I think spots, I think the Pentax Spotmatic introduced that, uh, the, yeah, the automatic, feature. yeah, um, or some, something around that era anyway. Yeah. The, the, yeah. And you know, like I have, uh, a couple of old, uh, Canon FTBs, uh, FT and FTBs, one of each, not two FTBs. One, yeah. Anyway, um, and they, you have to stop down. It's part of the, you have to stop down to meter. So, so it's automatically wide open. You can actually switch the lens. So either it's always um, the aperture that you're going to shoot at, or it's always wide open. Um, and, but you can, you can switch between the two. Uh, right. And uh, if you're, if you're wide open, you know, obviously it's easier to focus wide open because you have a shorter depth of field and you have more light to see, but um, you would just, you just hit a lever with your finger when you're focusing, you just hit, hit a lever and it stops it down and you get, you know, and you adjust the, the aperture and shutter speed for your, um, for your exposure. And it's just match needle. Um, but when you do that, you see the image better. You see, or you get a better preview of the image because it's stopped if you, out. If you, you can, get that, yeah. That, the I like the I like those too. Except that sometimes you can't see at all because it's so dark. And there, and yes, <laughs> absolutely. That you know, there's no denying that um, that, that 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 is an issue. But most of the time, that's one of the things that I I I have to beat in. To my students, you know that, and show up. Attendance is everything. No, sorry. Um, so the way, so the so the way that I have adjusted to that because I use nothing but an SLR for twenty five years. What what you learn to do is you learn to keep track of the aperture, and it really helps if it's visible in the viewfinder because then, as you're moving the camera around and changing settings, 
you, there's a corner of your eye you're saying, oh, it's f11. This isn't good. You know, everything's this is going to be really sharp for a lot of depth, and you just have this awareness of it um, from experience, and that works quite well. Um, it depth of field preview can be useful, especially with super close up stuff or whatever. But so much of the time, I find I can't see very well. It doesn't give me that good of a read. And maybe it's partly my eyesight changing, because I do remember when I was 16, 17 years old and starting out, I used that depth of field preview lever quite a bit. Um, and I could see, maybe I could just see better then. You know, you know <laughs> I don't remember. I, re I remember learning about the depth of field preview lever um, in my, you know, back in the 80s when I was taking uh, photography classes um, but I don't remember getting in the habit of using it at all. Yeah. And, uh, if I'd had that, you know, Canon, uh, FT or FTB, I mean, I, I think I might have been a better photographer seriously mm. in those eight, mm -hmm. in that time, because, because you're confronted with it on every shot. And that's what I think is, um, is really good. So, um, so, but, you know, let's get back to, um, you know, you, if you're looking through the lens on, or looking through the viewfinder on an SLR, you have no parallax issues. Right. Um, since you're looking through the taking and you lens. Always, and you always have a viewfinder that's the exact same focal length as the lens. So, you know, right. you never have to, you don't need to buy an accessory to, to, you know, to match a new lens. So that's, uh, very efficient. Right. Uh, less stuff to mess around with and, and pay for and take care of. And... So most most commonly, I think it's most commonly today and really most commonly over the course of uh, the history of at least 35 millimeter SLRs, it's most often been a pentaprism situation. So you don't have to, um, you know, do any of the, the brain work to, to flip it back and... Uh, and you can, you can turn naturally with, uh, with the way your eyesight works, but a lot of SLRs, um, were originally waist level finders. So it was like looking down into a TLR. Um, do you have any of those? Yeah. Um, and actually any SLR, which has a interchangeable viewfinders, if you take off the prism hump, uh -huh. You can look right at the ground glass, you know, even if it doesn't have an official little hood that pops up. So usually what a waist level viewfinder is on one of those cameras is you take off the prism, you put this uh, device on it. All it really is is a folding hood to block the light so that you get a, a brighter view and often a little fold down magnifying glass or loop that, okay. can let, that lets you see the, whether the tiny, tiny, tiny little picture is in focus because with a 35 millimeter camera that ground glass is just the same size as a 35 millimeter negative it's pretty small yeah uh, sometimes it's kind of fun and i have one that i really do like someone gave me a, an old nikon f that had a waist level viewfinder or maybe i put one on it anyway mm -hmm. um it's it's not that practical in that you can't see all that well but it's sort of fun because for some kinds of composition because you just kind of look down and just check the framing and then look straight at your subject instead of looking through the viewfinder, there's a way that it almost starts to make the single lens reflex camera back into something more like an old fashioned camera where you're less dependent on the viewfinder. And, and that's kind of fun. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of interesting 
attachments for those single lens re reflexes that have interchangeable viewfinders. So some of the fancier systems like Nikon, a late Pentax, some of the others had waist level viewfinders. They had prism types. The, all the first, a lot of the first light meters were built into the, the removable viewfinder. So some like the Nikon F had the light meter in the viewfinder and you could either have it or not. And then there was, there was another type called a sports finder that I happened to have for that camera, which it's designed to be looked at from a distance. It, you're still seeing the view right side up and right ways round through a prism, but it's, the viewfinder has a, like a big viewport and your the eye relief, the eye relief distance is back several inches. And the idea was that for shooting sports, you could, um, have your kind of have your head up and just swing the camera and kind of glance down at this. It's sort of like looking at a little L L C LCD on the back of a mirror, a mirrorless camera, and you can see the the normal view there and focus quite easily. You know, it's it help it's, it gives you a great view for focusing. And then what happened is it turned out to be the perfect solution to underwater camera work because when you're wearing a scuba mask, you can't get your eye up to the camera, and that's a lot of uh, scuba underwater photographers put those sport finders on the camera so they could view it from a few inches away. So I have a couple more to mention while we're going through all the types. Uh, one of them is going back in time to when cameras were were bigger and bulkier, usually a folding bellows type of camera. And people were using quite slow film, so they very often wanted the camera propped up on a table or sitting on a tripod. And in those days, m most of the cameras had a normal lens, so all you really needed was a little wireframe viewfinder. And a lot of times that's was on the camera, but it was very inconvenient to use when the camera was tilted on its side. And it was very inconvenient to use when the camera was like on a table or down near the ground or on a short tripod as it often was. And so the solution they came up with was to put a tiny little prism uh, right um, on the kind of on the corner of the lens and you can look straight down into it and it, it gives you, it's like a periscope view. It'll give you, it's like a the equivalent of a waist level external viewfinder. A lot of those old Kodak folders, like the, they had them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I and I, and I have I have some old Zeiss icons that have that thing. Um, and it, it's it's the small. It's like it's like a tiny. Little, it's the size of a a very small like gambling dice. It's really tiny, and that's how big the image is. So you can barely see anything, but you can kind of aim the camera with it and. They're actually better than they look when you try and use one. I've, I've used them. And then the other extreme, we talked about uh, variable mask viewfinders to, to change focal length view. We talked about we talked about a turret one, but there actually are also zooming viewfinders, um, the, especially that some of the higher end uh, viewfinders designed for large format uh, by, I don't know, Linhoff and people like that and were actually a zoom lens. Uh, created at TV used as a viewfinder and you can zoom through a whole range of focal lengths and those are actually really pretty slick really uh, I don't yeah I don't think I've ever come across those and because they were generally made for large format the uh, the uh, the framing is for for four by five so if you ever want a viewfinder and you ask yourself well why would you use a viewfinder on a large format camera because you can see the whole image on the ground glass but it's awkward to set the camera up, put the big bag over your head, you know, get the loop out, put it up, it focus the lens. That's a lot of futzing around. 
So a lot of large format photographers will carry one of these viewfinders in their pocket and they'll just, it's like, you know, the old, I don't know, I used to see movie directors doing this. You know, oh, they'd, sure. They'd hold the thing up to their eye and, and kind of peer around looking for the composition before they even get the camera out of their box and set it up. Oh, and yeah. that's, yeah. That, and, but those can be mounted on a camera and, and they're kind of expensive, but they do cover a, a lot and they are all set up for four by five. So if you ever are thinking of building a four by five handheld camera, that's a really interesting option because it will cover all your focal lengths in the correct framing, uh, solve a lot of problems. Um, but we, it might be worth saying that the, there is one more thing to say about rain uh, viewfinders in general, which is so some of them are very, very clean and simple with no distractions. And some of them have a whole lot of stuff going on in them. And that's an actual design decision there. Sure. Well. So if you were with a rangefinder camera, you would have the rangefinder patch. You would have the right. frame lines. You might have um, shutter speed or shutter speed and um, aperture in there. Yeah, right. I mean, it can get quite um, uh, cluttered, in fact. But sometimes it's done really well, so... Yes. Yeah. One, and I think that most modern digital SLRs do it fairly well. Uh, I kind of well, I don't know. I kind of like an uncluttered viewfinder, and and there's there's a tendency for there to be too many things to see. But the better cameras allow you to erase them in the menu. So, in fact, there's a button on my Fuji's which allows me to completely make all the information vanish. So you have a completely clear view, and that's really nice. Uh, but I was going to say that there are some implementations in the old mechanical information viewfinders that I really like. And I've recently started using uh, a Minolta X-D5 SLR. Yes. And it's a wonderful camera. It's it's a m mechanical camera, but it has an electronic metal shutter. So it's fairly sophisticated. I think it might be the very first camera that had both shutter priority and aperture priority and manual all in one camera. And you just push a switch to choose which one you're going to use. And when it does... It's really clever when you're looking at shutter priority, there's a horizontal or no, a vertical band of shutter speeds on the right. And you actually see which one the camera has selected. And then when you switch to aperture priority, that, that metal, whatever there's in there, this little strip of information slides aside and reveals the aperture scale instead. So it's it's just this very elegant solution. So you're not looking at any distracting information. It's just showing you exactly what is relevant. And then it shows nice. shows both of them when you get to manual, right? Right. Yeah, right. I had an XD11 that I I really liked. It well, that's does, exactly the same camera. Yeah, it does have a slight because one of the things that's absolutely amazing about that camera is it when you press the shutter release button. It actually takes a final last ditch meter reading mm -hmm. just before you just yep. before it exposes, and it's got right. it has that stock that pops up and and jumps out of the way that is just yeah it's, <laughs> it's crazy yeah it's got a little bit of a delay and that just that drove me a little bit batty well uh, that must explain the sound because the shutter mirror sound on that camera is not like any i've right. ever heard before there's right. a funny little hiccup and a kind of a buzz in it yeah. right right that must be that little light meter like sticking its head in in front of the guillotine there right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly right. so uh okay so let's talk about the camera's 
that don't have um, focusing or, well, I mean, that, that are just framing. So, uh, um, you know, that, that are not rangefinders, they're not SLRs, they're not TLRs. They are just what we call viewfinder cameras. So right. they're, they're for cameras that generally have a fixed focal length, although there are some with a zoom capability that, that have a fixed focal length. And all it is, is their, you know, ready for you to frame the shot. And, um, you know, like for instance, um, you know, the, the Olympus trip 35 would be one of those. And the, um, the camera that I was slagging early on, the, um, the Epic, uh, stylus Epic, um, would be, you know, those kind of cameras where the only bit of data that's probably going to be in there other than the frame line is uh, a red light or a green light about whether or not you can take the picture based on some something <laughs> well yeah hopefully on light uh, you know on whether it's within range so of what the, the shutter the and aperture range. can do okay, yeah. yeah so so now what are the advantages do, do you do you see any advantages to those types of uh, well, uh, a plain on a plain unadorned viewfinder with almost no information except framing. I mean, the main advantage is there's no distraction. So sometimes I like to use a camera where I've t- I've made my decisions about focusing and about exposure in advance, and I have only one thing to think about, which is what's in the frame and when to press the shutter button. And in that type of situation a plain viewfinder like that can be an advantage because there's no distractions. I find sometimes that a rangefinder camera, which has an, a rangefinder patch, is constantly sort of nagging me to check focus. And that's a mm-hmm. distraction. And I don't always like that distraction. And the same problem with a uh, single-lens reflex. Any manual focus camera uh, can be a, that can be a distraction. I find it sometimes a problem for me. And if you and if you can just realize that you've you know hey it's f eight and you're not going to be out of focus and stop thinking about it, that can actually help you your your freedom to to shoot. Yeah, I uh, you know it's it's the classic thing that I remember learning from Driver's Ed: check left, check right, check left, proceed right. And it's check focus, check exposure, check focus, check focus. Frame it, check focus. That's right. that, that's the part that you're right. And, but with and a I, plain with a plain viewfinder, it's just the open road. You don't have an intersection, so there's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and those right. can be either you know if it, very few of those cameras uh, came with what what we would call normal lenses. So they're they're not in the in the forty to fifty range. They're usually in the 35 they're they they generally are wide so you can get people in the picture or you can get the mountain in the picture or you can right. get the building in the picture or the statue or whatever it is that you're taking um so they have to be a, have a little bit of lens but there are some of them that also are just you know essentially pass through glass both rangefinder cameras and viewfinder cameras have Usually you're peering through some sort of hole or lens that's near the lens on the camera. And that can be a problem in that the real lens often sticks out so far that it gets in your field of view and blocks the view. So that can be an issue. Um, That is a downside to viewfinders and rangefinders. They work best with stubby little lenses that don't get in the way. Um, And I'll I'll say 
almost all of my rangefinder cameras have view of the lens in within the frame. Right. And there are some interesting solutions to getting in close and using close-up lenses where you actually have a, a special lens that goes in front of the viewfinder to make it match what you see, um, what the real lens sees. Mm-hmm. I think Leica made those. They have certain lenses that come with it. They call them goggles. That, right. You know, a, a little lens that sticks up in front of the viewfinder to make it possible to see. Yeah, and uh, with, the, with the Leicas, there was also a lens that would go over the rangefinder window. Uh, so there were two little yeah, things. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's yeah. what I'm, right. That's why, well, that's why be, it was called goggles. Right? Well, yeah, right. It'd be the yeah. viewfinder window and the rangefinder window. Right. And, yeah. and, and the similar, in similar way, Roloflex had uh, close up lenses that covered both of the, the, the taking lens and the viewing lens, mm-hmm. uh, and functioned in the same way for close up. Um, with all of these, um, you know, with all of these cameras, with the exception of the SLRs, we have the problem of, using any sort of filters or any sort of anything on that lens other than just the lens itself um, because we don't then see what those effects are. You know, um, uh, you might want to use a yellow or red filter with black and white film to, to make a punchier picture. Uh, you might want to use a, um, uh, a, a, oh, I'm trying to think of uh, well, I've, the I've, polarizing. The, the... That's the trick. That's the trickiest one because those partly function by how they're uh, angled in relation to the light source. So, you know, with a single lens reflex camera, you can just look through and turn the filter until it looks right. And, and you cannot do that with a separate viewfinder unless I suppose would it work to have a real, just take a really big one and hope and cover both the viewfinder and the lens. (laughs) It might be awkward, but you could probably figure that out. And, and, and I know that they do make those filters that are, I don't know, eight inches in diameter. I don't think I want to buy them, but, uh, they certainly, so you could, you could figure out a workaround, but I, you know, I'm kind of lazy about that. I think I would just not use the thing. Now I will say also that there, you know, I say that that's a disadvantage that you're not seeing through that. It also, in some situations, is an advantage because you're oh, not yeah. distracted by right. the you know the the various tint whatever or tint it or is. for example it right or for I'm sorry to interrupt but a a, a true um a true infrared filter you can't see anything through it right so if on a single lens reflex camera you put the thing on and you literally can't see at all mm-hmm. uh, but with a viewfinder camera no problem you you're not looking through the, the you just have to remember to adjust your exposure um, correctly, but right. you, you can see fine. And what people have to do with single lens reflexes, they have to take the thing off, get the camera all set and then put it back on. And yeah. Right. Right. So, um, you mentioned them before you were talking about your Fuji that you can turn information on or off, um, mm-hmm. in the viewfinder. That's an electronic viewfinder system, right? Well, it is, but they, that, they do make a couple, they make a couple of models of camera that have an optical viewfinder that's a real plain old fashioned optical viewfinder, but it, it has a system that allows them to project information and frame lines that match lenses into that optical space so that you see it through the viewfinder. I had the Fuji X100S for that a while. That. And yeah. yeah, and you can do it had three modes. It had just plain shoot, just look through it, right? Just framing. And then it had the 
uh, hybrid mode, and you're looking through it, but there was a like a little rangefinder patch. Um, well, there the there were all sorts of there were all there are I have an X Pro one which is similar, yeah. and they have all sorts of uh, features which you can select. You can turn them on or off. Um, so focusing aids are one thing. There's the usual readout information and the frame lines, which are corrected for parallax and all that stuff. Now you, on yours, it was a fixed lens camera, uh, but, but on the X pro one, the thing actually adjusts through a wide range of focal lengths and you can enter them yourself. So if you put on, you know, an oddball lens that you happen to have, you can set the camera to precisely show you what that lens will see. It's, it's actually a great system. No. Yeah, I agree. The The only downfall for it for me is that it is you're looking through something that looks like you're uh, uh, like a TV it looks like a VCR playback from you know 1985 it's it, the resolution just is it, you know there are video not sure what glitches you're about. you uh, mean you yeah. mean you mean the in the electronic viewfinder. in the electronic viewfinder yeah that's yes. cuz you had an old model the new ones are great <laughs> But they're too expensive, so we'll just drop that for now. Right, and, right, exactly. And what, what I um what I what I what I do like about that, another thing I like about that, uh, the implementation on the Fuji X Pro One is that they have two different lenses on their optical viewfinder. So when you are using a longer lens, the whole viewfinder zooms in mm-hmm. closer. Um, and then when you're using a wider lens, it has a wider setting, and that's actually a pretty simple thing to do. It's it's just an extra lens kind of coming into play. Um, and it would be a good way to make regular viewfinder cameras more versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's sort of like the zooming viewfinder I mentioned earlier. And actually I've used an old, older model of Fuji digital camera that had a zooming optical viewfinder. And I had an old Canon one that did that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a kind of, a an interesting option. And I wonder, you know, I wonder how hard it would be to make one using the right tiny little zoom lens. I don't know. Do they have tiny little zoom lenses on any of the 110 cameras that you can make into a viewfinder? <laughs> there well, might be something out there. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought, of, thought about that. So, and then, then our last, uh, well, our second to last category that we, we talked about, and, and you've mentioned them a bit, are, are just the sports finders that are mechanical, you know, essentially pop-up wires um, that give you just the framing. That's their only purpose out there is to give you the framing. Um, you know, like I have a, uh, what is it? A baby speed graphic or whatever. Uh, sure. And it's like my crown graphic. Right. And, and, and it's just, it, uh, folds down over the front of the lens and then it folds up and then there's a little bit at the back that does that. Um, yeah, they, the graphics usually have a swing up arm with a little circle on top that you can put your eye to. And then a rectangle mm-hmm. that slides up from the from the front standard. And what's yeah. kind of cool about those cameras, while we're on this topic, is that they usually came with a rangefinder, a plain sight through tube viewfinder, a sports finder, the frame you're just describing, right. and ground glass. So they pretty much have every possible system. They have through the lens, they have like quick and dirty framing, and they have kind of the simple peep through. With a way to and with a coupled rangefinder for focusing, so they gave and you could also scale focus and you could also focus on the back. So that viewfinder gave so many different ways to handle so many different situations. It was it was a really practical camera. I mean, you could change lenses 
and uh, quickly adjust. Except usually the rangefinders were a pain to adjust, but but other than that, other than that, you were you had all these different ways to handle different situations. I still like that about them. Yeah, and I do find that my rangefinder is, um, it you know for for close up uh, on. On, on mine, you know, I, you get to about six feet and it, and it stops reacting. Well, you um, oh, you mean it's, yeah, you can't, fo- well, you can't focus that close with it. And then, but then right. you're well within measuring tape range at that point. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> you, you have a point there. Yeah. That's when you, you pop up the camera glass. like that, you could just attach a measuring tape to the front of it, you know, yeah. just screw it on there. Or just And actually, stick. while we're on the, uh, <laughs> while we were talking about uh, crazy ideas, I was thinking that that I mentioned it using a 110 lens uh, as a zoom viewfinder, and then I was thinking, well, no, you could just mount the whole 110 camera on a big, <laughs> on a big camera like that. It would be not, you know, it would be like your auxiliary viewfinder with its own little film in it. So <laughs> I think that idea of putting a 110 camera as the viewfinder of a big, large format camera would be really fun, and then you could. You could simultaneously get four by five and one ten of the same scene. And at this point, I say, I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to mm. up. You have to up the stakes with Nick, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I swore I would never get one of those one ten pairs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we well, I guess we talked about the Crown Graphic um, a, as a large format camera, um, but what what about you know like a standard four by five? You know your field camera. Um, what do you do for framing and focusing and all that type of stuff for that? Well, generally, if you're doing anything that involves movements and, you know, changing lenses around on a, on a camera with bellows like that, it's just the most straightforward thing is just to use the ground glass. That's your viewfinder. You're looking at the image projected exactly on the real, uh, plane where the film will be. Mm -hmm. It's upside down. It's backwards. People who are into large format always say that's an advantage um, because you it, it makes the world look different, and so therefore you may do a better job of figuring out composition. Absolutely. It may, it may protect you from trite framing and that sort of thing because everything looks different. And I, I completely can see that, but it's also really a pain in the neck if you're try, trying to line things up or trying to catch some action because you know you make you sure to, your horizon is level. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so it's also it's awkward and it's slow. But it does make you think. You yeah. have plenty of time to do the thinking. So that's good. Um, but as I mentioned before, they did make the add-on viewfinders, um, mm-hmm. including really fancy zooming ones for large format because mm-hmm. you could then use them uh, more quickly. And some of the fancy field cameras have that. Uh, they're like press cameras in that they'll have multiple options for viewfinders. Like Linhoff and uh, some of the other big companies made some really fancy uh, fully adjustable field cameras that also had press camera viewfinders. Do you ever use a loop when you're um, focusing a, uh, a I always glass? do. I always okay. do. I'm farsighted and I usually use a loop and glasses because I'm trying to see really, really clearly. So I use, and I, and I tried a lot of different things for a while. I was using a jeweler's loop that you wore, wear on a frame around my head and it was kind of get, it was awkward. And I finally just stumbled on a, a traditional one that they used to use for slide viewing. Okay. Um, it's like an eight power clear plastic cylinder with a magnifying glass in the top. I oh, found okay. it at a, you know, at a yard sale for a dollar and that thing works really well. So you just have to find one where the magnification works with your eyes and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Shape. 
I just uh, recently purchased, I was at, um, I don't know, Michael's Hobby Lobby, one of those things. And um, they had on the clearance section something that had been opened and returned. And it's those jeweler's glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, it, it's a headband. And it's yeah, a, I have one of those. It's, it's slide up. And, and I found I, that working with small parts, um, as soon as oh, I yeah. got that, I've, I, I use it for a lot of things. And I, they're I'm, really good. If you're, once you can't see very well, they're fantastic. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I, I mean, I, I use them all the time. And, you know, working on cameras, there's screws that I can't get a screwdriver into without the magnifying glass. Uh, the other thing you'll discover is that there are different magnifications that you can get for that thing. So I ended up with one that works, right. you know, kind of at arm's length and then one that really, really magnifies for getting in close. Yeah, I, it has three different little slide-in uh, lenses. Oh, nice. So, so that's, yeah. all, that's good. So um, one, of the, one of the downsides is that you have to get under the dark cloth, uh, although it's kind of fun. You know, well, uh, so um, there is a middle ground. So the press cameras have just have a fold-out uh, light shade um oh and while we're talking about loops this loop that i found at the yard sale it's the cylinder is clear plastic and that actually is really nice because the typical dark you know the typical black loop it's 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 reducing the amount of light in, in a way i mean i just think the clear one seems to be better um, okay it's i don't know i like it better it's not throwing a shadow on the ground glass which which is helpful i think yeah so okay, so back to the uh, the other topic. Um, the the speed graphic, crown graphic, all of those. Uh, a lot of waist level viewfinders just have a fold up box that mm-hmm. that's just throwing a nice dark shadow on the ground glass so that you can see it better, and they work fine as long as the lens that you're looking through is fairly fast. The trouble with large format is a lot of times the lenses are not fast; they're very slow. They can mm-hmm. be as slow as eight or f nine. And that's a really dark image on the ground glass. So in that case, you really do need to put the big bag over your head. And uh, there are the traditional one was a big black cloth, and I found out recently why. It was not just to shade the ground glass, but it was also to cover the camera to prevent light leaks. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah. old wooden old wooden cameras would just they'd expand and contract, and the bellows would get cr- cranky and they'd leak light. Plus the exposures were really slow. Um, lots of time for light to get in so they would just use a huge black cloth cover the whole camera right up to the lens and the photographer and that was part of the purpose of it yeah i hadn't ever thought of that but yeah i i've i've seen those photos uh where it covers everything so uh, that makes total sense but modern cameras that don't leak it's kind of a it's a kind of a pain in the ass to have your to be living underneath this big black blanket sweltering out in the sun so What I have uh, one that I use that's I think it's Badger brand and what it is is it's a it's more like a tube that you put your head in one end and then there's an elastic around the other end that you can snap around the back of the camera and there's a Velcro slot in the bottom so you can get your hand up in there to hold the loop um, and it it's bright silvery white on the outside and black on the inside so it doesn't get hot in there it mm-hmm. really blocks the light it's compact streamlined doesn't blow around in the wind you know. Uh, it's really a good outdoor uh, solution to that. Okay, so um, we we've talked about um, you know looking through that ground glass. Um, we we've got a bunch of different options with ground glass, right? Oh yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, you've seen the ones with the grid on them, right? The and uh, there's different kinds of 
grinding like you could make your own and there's there's basically some transmit light better than others the quality of the glass makes a difference uh there's my crown graphic has something called a fresnel lens which is just a thin sheet with concentric circles on it it's similar to a polarizer and what it's it it somehow effectively shifts more light out to the outside of the ground glass which is generally dark there's a lot of vignetting um in a typical ground glass because the ground glass out of the corners is literally, you know, farther away from the lens and the light's coming through at more of an angle. It may be, so it's, t- they tend to get dim towards the edges and it makes it harder to focus on a big scene, uh, where, but the Fresnel lens somehow counteracts that and brightens the whole view. So there's a lot of range in how easy they are to focus. And, you know, sometimes they have special areas on the glass that make it easier to focus, like, you know. Uh, have you ever have you ever ground your own glass or, or done it with um, you know plexi? No, all I've ever done is just use Scotch tape uh, yeah. as a replacement for ground glass. So I was just you know. uh, I was just thinking about doing that um, for myself. You know, getting a you know because I have some plexiglass laying around. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose if I just let it lay around enough, it'll it'll you know frost itself. But uh, I, w- I was just trying I. I was trying to figure out what would be the optimum grit and I'm getting so very, very fine. Yeah. So I'm guessing yeah. 220 or, or we'll actually have a book somewhere. So I'll look it up. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, that explains it, how it's done. Well, we'll... the simple in simple form is you get either sandpaper or some grit and you put it between two flat parallel things, the glass being one of them and some sort of a board or another piece of glass. Yeah. And you just rub the two things together uh, until it's all evenly scuffed. Yeah, and I've seen uh, pictures of people doing that, and it's just I don't need to mess with glass, you know, because then you have to inhale sure. it, and, you know, all that. You don't have to. I mean, you can wear a respirator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. If you do it properly, you know. So. Right. And if you're using, if so, a lot of glass work is done with a slurry of very fine abrasive mixed in a fluid. Uh, and that keeps the okay. dust from blowing sure. around, and it keeps it sort of sticking to the surface you want it to be on. Now we're getting into lens grinding, which I actually I read uh, about some of the giant lenses that were made for huge telescopes uh-huh. for astronomy, and there was a really big one made at Corning that ended up in some observatory in California, and they had to make a gigantic reflecting mirror that was very, very perfect. Yes. Uh, and the final rubbing to get it perfect was done with a very very fine grit and bare hands they actually just used their hands wow (laughs) to just rub and rub and rub (laughs) to get it as you know polished as they could developing or adapting our own viewfinders yeah so the the most basic first thing to try would be a sports finder type um so that's just a some sort of wire frame uh and a, and a peep hole to line up the view get the get the angle of view right and i guess i'm going to start by talking about uh how you would make it the right size 
Uh, because, because, you know, you don't, you're starting with just a lens and a box and maybe there's some ground glass on the back. Or maybe there isn't, but you need to see the image that the lens sees in order to compare it to your viewfinder and, and see if it works right or get the size right or get the position right. So well, one way to do that is, you know, say you have built a camera that doesn't have any ground glass. You can just use scotch tape or a little, you know, a little quick homemade ground glass substitute that you put right on the film plane and then point your camera, it's best with a tripod, at something like a big barn door or a blank wall is such that you can you can draw with you can get someone an assistant or you can just do it yourself back and forth back and forth you can get some tape and actually mark the outlines of what the lens sees okay sure on the wall and then fiddle with your viewfinder until it's framing the same thing and you want to be far enough back that you're kind of getting the infinity view because that's really the basic viewfinder um, <clears throat> you could use the same system to check on any parallax correction um, adjustments that you design by getting the camera closer and closer, seeing how you have to move the viewfinder to accommodate parallax. But but that's just how to like get the, the thing to uh, look right. So how about describing some other types of homemade viewfinders? So okay, so you know you you talked about also uh, tube viewfinders. So that is essentially the same thing as the sports finder. It's just it's in an enclosed shape, whereas a sports finder is two open pieces. And what's the advantage of the enclosed shape? Well, uh, it, it it blocks out what you're not getting, you know. So so you're seeing, you know, j the only thing that you see is what's within the view uh, of the um, uh, of of the lens. So uh, so it sort of it sort of focuses your attention on just that, right? And right. the disadvantage of that is that you can't see anything else. Whereas with a sports finder, you can see what's going on to the side and around and above and below. And I guess in sports, you want to have your eye on what's going on at the other end of the court in case something better happens up there. Or, or <laughs> yeah, right. you can you can time it so you know a, a pass in football. You can you can constantly frame the receiver and right. and just see when that when the ball's coming in that's uh, you know and time it time it for right. that whereas if you were the tube finder by the time the ball appeared it would be too late and you would miss the right. shot right right but it but yeah. it it does simplify the view if if that's not an issue right there mm -hmm. you know i was thinking also you were talking about how to uh, how to frame that there is also the mathematical angle of view um if you um uh, I, I put a link in the show notes a couple of shows ago um, about, you know, uh, figuring out uh, comparable views. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lens calculator, uh, essentially. One of the things that it'll give you is your angle of view. So it'll give right. you a degree angle of view. And, and, uh, and I've used that a couple of times when making finders for, um, for the 63. I did that, right. um, and uh, eh, I, I need well, so to do it again. So you need so. to make the so you need to make the the viewfinder see the same angle of view as the lens. So that's a right. useful that's a useful piece of information. Uh, you could do it by trial and error, as I described, or you could calculate it. And then, in addition, uh, there's a problem when you use cameras that have interchangeable film backs because 
the viewfinders also have got to match the framing of the film format. Sure. And if you can change from six by nine to six four five on the same camera, uh, you're going to, you know, that's a pretty big change in framing. And one viewfinder won't necessarily show you both views. A lot right. of times, you it's best to just get the the one that matches the larger size and then just mentally adjust. So so with one twenty film, typically the widest. Uh, the common size is six by nine. So, mm. and that, that very conveniently is the same aspect ratio as 35 millimeter. It's two to three. And mm. that's nice because it means you can use all those 35 millimeter viewfinders with medium format. You just have to adjust that the angle of view is different. Um, but once you know that you can find a fairly close equivalent, uh, and you have the same framing. Okay. So then if you put a six by seven back on the camera, you just have to mentally tell yourself, well, it's going to crop, you know, two, one centimeter off each side. So proportion of the picture will be cropped off the sides. Right. And you can pretty easily adjust to, you know, thinking that through. Now, one of the things that you also mentioned is you, you, you were jokingly talking about the 110 camera where it's a, it's a little tiny lens and you can look through it and you can get, um, you know, theoretically that same angle. Um, mm-hmm. but there is, it was, uh, I, I sent you a link to it. It was in either 35 MMC or emulsive.org. Um, and I don't remember which one, but it was the idea of taking an old, taking a, a plastic camera that has a specific, say you have a plastic camera that has a 32 millimeter lens. Well, that's mm-hmm. the viewfinder should approximate that 32 millimeter lens. So you can take the, the housing apart for the camera. And this is going to destroy the camera, but you would take the housing apart and then you can place those lens elements in the same pattern. So uh, you know, if there, if there are three lens elements, you can place two of them closer to the, the other one. You, you just, so basically make, you're pattern. making, you're making a new housing for the, a new housing, right. Lenses for, co- copying the same uh, orientation it originally had, and then just mount that on your homemade camera. And right. Then, and I'll put yeah, a, yeah. put a link in the show notes to the, uh, article that I'm referring to, but there was, um, you know, uh, a, a really good detailed step by step. And, and the person who wrote it, uh, made a, uh, a housing using, um, a 3D printer. But I don't think you need that 3D printer. I think it's something that you could reasonably do in wood, you know, um, sure. or, or some other material. You could probably even do it with clay, <laughs> you know, a little FEMO, uh, action there. You know, it would probably shrink. But anyway, um, with, with clay, you could actually adjust it for different formats on sure. the Sure. Sure, exactly. Maybe, maybe silly putty would be a really good <laughs> material. <laughs> exactly. This is the ceramic one, and, um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't even need a cold shoe with silly putty. You could just stick, <laughs> it, stick it on there. Yeah, it may not exactly keep the same view the whole time, but yes, uh, exactly. So you also, um, you know, uh, you were talking about a door peephole. Um, oh yeah, so you know those motel room door peepholes or, right. or city apartments where if someone knocks on the door, you stick your eye up, and if they're not going to shoot you through the peephole, you right. get to see who they are. <laughs> <laughs> and those wide, those wide angle—they're very wide angle because you're meant to see everybody in the corridor. No one's—you know—they're supposed to cover right. such a wide view that no one can hide next to the door and surprise you. So 
they are, you know, they're an extreme wide angle viewfinder, ready-made, yeah. really cheap at the hardware store. And I've seen people use them. And since it's a very wide view, you can just make a mask to, you know, to shrink it down to a, a, a smaller size view. Okay. Yeah. Um, good so point. it, yeah, it gives you a reasonably good option for wide angle lenses. And you, you know, you can make, you could either make different masks for it, or you could even take a piece of clear material like acetate or plexiglass and draw a couple different frame line options on there. Um, and, you know, just put that in front of it to, uh, yeah. have, you have to draw really small cause it's a tiny lens. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You have to get you your, you have to <laughs> have to get the Koenors out, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, so uh, now, one of the things that we're talking about with with building most of these is we're going to have to mount them on the camera one way or another. And of course, the easiest one is to you know, if the camera already has a shoe on it, you're you're fine. Uh, or you have to put a shoe on that camera, and those are. Those are relatively uh, cheap to buy. I, I I got a five pack for ten bucks somewhere, not too long ago. Um, or you could, you know, it, since you're taking apart that one camera anyway, uh, for for the for the viewfinder, if it has a shoe, probably won't. If it has a shoe, you can. Well, don't you, can don't you need the, that over? You need the you need the foot, not the shoe. So right, the camera well, has the shoe. Yes, then you have to and, build the build. A, so you need a foot a for, foot the, for the housing. Yeah. housing so you could get that from a, a bad old you know a flash or something right like sure find a broken flash and just cut the foot off of that or, right and this you is can, there's all sorts of devices that have a uh, a hot foot or a cold foot on them so and yeah. and and this is really where you go to the thrift store the charity store um or charity shop excuse me i have to you know translate for our brit listeners um <laughs> so the you know that this is where those old plastic cameras in the dollar bin are you know start to have a little bit more value yeah. um you know because some of those um you, you know mimicked uh better cameras than they were and it's not it's not just uh, plastic cameras the the low, one of the camera repair places um i wander into now and again has bins like that of real cameras because oh, okay. there are a lot of really good cameras that are basically completely impossible to repair now because the parts don't exist maybe they had some electronics in them you know and those have pretty high quality components that you could saw off or use. And a lot of times it'll be a $5 bin or whatever, but you know, if you yeah. want magnesium instead of plastic, uh, it's maybe worth a couple bucks. And I have that Minolta X570 that, you know, had the shutter die. So I'm already, yeah. uh, I'm already mm-hmm. thinking about, uh, uh, using the mount, uh, taking yeah. the mount off and putting that on a, uh, on a camera. So I'd have a Minolta range. Uh, There's a lot of useful parts there. You've got a, a Minolta mount. A bayonet mount on it you've right. got a um uh the viewfinder sometimes there's like a even though it's a single lens reflex there's the part you put your eye to and those right. can be u- useful parts there's the tripod mount on the bottom um i mean it, it's definitely there's a whole lot of camera stuff there um to be, right to be used to be harvested from the right. from the go. corpse of uh yes um Okay, now uh, we we'd already talked about the handheld viewer uh, for the large formats. Um, you said that Ansel Adams used a blue filter. Yeah, uh, he had a for... blue piece of glass he would peer through to try and approximate what the world looked like in monochrome. So, you know, he was just he he shot black and white. That was those are the days when color was just considered a gauche thing for tourists, and 
real artists shot black and white and they they couldn't preview their pictures they didn't have any electronic viewfinders for that so he used to look peer through a piece of blue glass just to kind of get rid of the color information and be less distracted by it you know i i will say um i i um was well into my photography uh and my mother had had um taken a, a photography course and and she had been given a red piece of glass to look through uh to get the same idea of what that uh mm-hmm. black and white and and as soon as she did that and I held it up I realized that I actually have absolutely I I probably my strongest strength in photography is looking at the color scene with my eyes and knowing how it's going to render in black and white. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's one one of those things that I. Um, oh, up oh, uh, my horns being tooted by me, <laughs> but that's one of my strengths. So, but that's right, a right, but right. that's a you know uh, not everybody has those. Um, so, yeah, I I think it sort of depends uh, on the scene. There are some colors that that read so strongly that they distract us from the actual intensity of the light. Like I think red's a bit problematic. So maybe a red filter is a good, you know, a good choice. Um, so you're not noticing the red compared to the blue or whatever. Uh, I don't know if I would ever bother with that, but it's a, it's a thought. It's an interesting idea. So you could, you could have a special viewfinder that had that built in if you wanted. Right. Or you could just use one of those electronic viewfinders and switch it to monochrome. Yeah, you could. So, or you could d- take a picture and look at it, print it and look at it, and then right. go back. <laughs> Over. <I don't> <laughs> Maybe the sun or, will be down by then. But There's a good reason to, to take a Polaroid Originals uh, yes. or Instax. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- take that with you. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about broken cameras. Are there any other ways to, uh, to source viewfinders? Um, well, see, harvesting them, making them from scratch. I think the yeah. making them from scratch thing is probably worth looking into because I feel like I'm, it's a, it's not likely that I'll get good enough at making ca- camera lenses to build a really effective high quality lens. I might right. make fun, fun lenses, but I'm not going to make, you know, something that competes with a, a, you know, a Fuji or a Mamiya or whatever, but, right. but for, you don't need perfect optics for a viewfinder. It's. So there is a place where I might fool around with learning something about lenses and, you know, playing around with that. Uh, because all that really matters is you approximate the right angle of view and have some way to frame it. it and a lot of, actually quite a lot of viewfinders don't bother with the extra elements they would need to correct optically and have a, you know, especially wide angle viewfinders often give you this a crazy, um, dis- like, what is it called? Barrel distortion. Yeah. So that the, the view you're seeing is really stretched out of shape because it would cost more money to make the extra lenses that corrected that. Um, so I think I might be willing to fool around with uh, I've got a homemade optics for a viewfinder. That would be fun. Sure. So um, there was a, uh, you used the term uh, Albata viewfinders. Um, yeah. I, I was unfamiliar with that. So I'm, I'm not sure the exact era, but sometime like probably by the 60s, uh, maybe even in late fit in the 50s, they were making viewfinders that used uh, they used special coatings and some sort of reflective layer that mm-hmm. projected the frame lines into 
the optical viewfinder so that there weren't actual marks showing the frame. It, and that what made them cool is that you had, they these viewfinders were very bright. They gave a very clear view. They often were pretty had a nice big view as well. We haven't really talked about that, but when you put lenses into a viewfinder, it's to get the correct angle of view, but it can also be either a large view or a small view. So based on okay. the lens design, the better viewfinders give a nice big view that looks... Um, it's usually expressed as a proportion of full size. So a one-to-one viewfinder is showing you the world as you see it with the naked eye. But most viewfinders shrink the view a bit um, in order to make the whole thing more compact. And in sometimes there's an advantage to having a smaller view. Um, either in, in any case, they do it optically. And so when you hold a camera up to your eye, you're, you're going to see a different size view of the world. And that's even true with single lens reflex. Even though you're looking through the lens, there's there's a little lens on the viewfinder port as well. And that is either magnifying the view of the uh, ground glass image you're looking at, or the view through the lens or whatever, um, or through the viewfinder to create some proportion of one-to-one and Mm. there are even viewfinders that are bigger than one-to-one and that would only be if it's not for framing so i have a rangefinder in a in a cosina voigtlander camera which is greater than one-to-one so because you're not framing with it you're just focusing it actually makes it easier to focus because it's a zoomed in view yes and that's that's really an um so that's another factor that comes up when you're looking at and designing viewfinders Interesting. Yeah. So they were farming them out to Japan. Yeah. Um, somewhere in the behind the iron curtain. So I just wanted to. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say that I'll, the thing about so cameras with Albata viewfinders, you you will have used them, and it's striking how bright and nice the image is, uh, and you'll recognize also that the frame lines will be a glowing white instead of uh, dark, some sort of dark line. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not looking at a, you're not looking at a silhouette of a mark you're looking at a glowing kind of projected image reflected image and then we talked about using another camera as a viewfinder well that can be as simple as having a another camera with you so if you're just carrying a camera with a zoom lens on it i mean you can just use that without even attaching it to the camera you're you're using you can just point it in the same direction and check your framing so that's something i actually do pretty often uh you know if i'm using a a awkward camera, maybe a ground glass camera, something like that. Is I'll just use another camera with zoom lens, zoom to an equivalent angle of view. So it's good to know the equivalent of angles of view. So if you have, if you're using a camera with a four by five or a six by nine or whatever different format, it's nice to know what the lenses you use are in an equivalent thirty-five millimeter angle of view, so that you can then just use kind of a a regular hand camera as a sighting device or. Uh, to help you compose pictures. And then we get to the easiest of all that I am the king of devi- devising for my cameras, and that is the no viewfinder camera. Right. Um, so I have, in fact, I'm looking at two of them, uh, two of the 67s, the pinhole and the one with the 75 millimeter lines. I'm looking at them right now, and uh, neither of them have viewfinders. Um, the 63 didn't have a viewfinder. And it's just kind of hold it up to your face. And and one of the things I like about it is if you do this, 
is you usually have a flat surface across the top of the camera with which you can measure the horizon and to get a level image. Um, right. And I think a lot of pinhole cameras put a V, v markings on that top surface right. showing the angle of view. And that's quite effective, too, because you can just sort of hold it out in front of you and look at it and go, oh, okay, that's the angle of view. It'll be about that. And yeah. Right. Absolutely. And there's something really nice about using a, you know, uh, a camera without a viewfinder. It, it, it allows you, first of all, when you have a viewfinder camera, you hold the camera in relation to that viewfinder. So um, if you have a, a camera with a with an eye level viewfinder, you all of your pictures are at eye level unless you make the effort to make them not at eye right. level. You may have to lie down in the mud and get a crick in your neck to, right. to get another point of view. Yeah, right. And um, and one of the big problems with waist level finders is you can go easily go all the way down to the ground with a waist level finder, but it, making it above your chin. You know, anything that's higher than your chin, you generally have to flip the camera over and look up straight up, which is almost impossible. And you will see old photos of people with TLRs, you know, trying to get above the crowd. So, well, they did that to get above the crowd. They also did it to avoid getting shot if they were in a, in a trench warfare. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. Has its, it has its uses, yeah. Yeah, so, so but, but one of the things, you know, and, and it all depends on how you shoot. If you have to know exactly what's in that frame, not having a viewfinder is not for you. But if you are a loose shooter, and I will say that I'm a loose shooter, it is a really refreshing way to work. Yes. Um, it, and if you've never done it, well, okay, if I put a viewfinder on either one of these things, I'm going to go to the viewfinder. And uh, But if I don't put a viewfinder on these i can just kind of just stick it out uh, over to the left and click and i'm and i get some angles that i otherwise wouldn't and and i and i enjoy that uh it works it works especially it works especially well with wider uh lenses too where right you're not it's it's not critical that you get someone's head in the picture because there's you know the whole sky's in there so Although, occasionally, you will miss critical uh, things. Uh, but yes, uh, it, it's, it is a good way to work. already know because you listen to the sunny 16 podcast or you visit the forums for either the sunny 16 podcast or our podcast but my partner nick has poked the bear and the bear of course being graham of the sunny 16 uh podcast um and it's all about the scamera uh rant that he went on i believe it is oh here i can tell you because it's it's queued up on my on my phone on the podcast here, uh, or excuse me on uh, on my podcast listening uh, listing. Oh, pfft, here Sunny Sixteen. It was in episode one hundred and two. Okay, photography ramble, and uh, and he was he was taking up a lot of time rambling about so called scammers. 
And uh, he descri- described the cameras as plastic cameras um, that are essentially made to look like, and I'm air quoting here, real cameras. And um, so what did he, what, what was his final word on them? Well, so he was complaining that the things didn't work very well, which, you know, they don't, they're terrible. But well, he was he, accurate on that. Yes. But he, but he, <laughs> but he was, he was calling upon, you know, the, the people out there listening to find seek these cameras out and smash them to bits, and it, that seemed a little extreme to me. I think someday maybe we'll want even these terrible cameras to work with. I don't know. Maybe I have a soft heart, but I immediately thought we should try and rescue some of these cameras. And and since we're the homemade camera podcast, the best way to rescue them is to make them into useful cameras, and that's what we do, right? We modify and build and correct and fix and improve the cameras around us. So I decided we would have a challenge and see if any members of the Homemade Camera podcast could get a hold of some of these crummy old plastic cameras. And I guess what distinguishes a scamera from something like a Holga is that a Holga just said right on it, I'm a toy, you're going to get funny pictures. But the scammers were attempting to imitate a really good cameras. Uh, not very hard. They weren't trying very hard. They were improbably uh, bad copies of 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 well-known brands although they sometimes are you know handsome in their own ugly way but (laughs) i i gotta say when i saw this i i you know of course graham and i immediately sent off for some of these cameras so that we could try fixing them up and making them better and i i put posted a picture of one and i got a uh a response from someone in i think it was in central america who commented that he no it wasn't it was in south america it was uh neither i think it was paraguay anyway he said that there was he remembers in the 90s when a bunch of those things came in there were people who thought they were going to be a real camera and you know wasted their money on them and it, it was an effective scam for people who weren't used to seeing you know high quality cameras up close so i guess they they were actually they were scammers. Like that is a fair criticism. Yeah, I, I think it's a good. I think it's a good word because they yeah. were designed to sucker people into um, buying something that it, it that it really it, okay. It is a camera, but it is it is not just barely right. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Right. As as I was just thinking, you know, um, essentially. Uh, what Graham is doing is he is condemning a goat for not being a horse. Um, they're both four-legged creatures. And, well, I guess if, and, if you need a horse, that's a pretty reasonable uh, right, point of view. Right, exactly. And, and if, so what we're doing, you what you're suckered, saying is that what we have to do is we have to make a goat into a horse. Is that I think job? that I think that that's our <laughs> job. And and we might end up being the goats in it. Um, but But yes, absolutely. So... So I went out looking, um, and and the the entertainment of just buying it has been um, enough, um, you know, enough entertainment. Considering that at this point the money outlay is not very much. But my first one that I bought, I bought at auction, and immediately, um, get, well, okay, early the next day I got an email from the guy who was selling it who said. Oh, um, I went to grab it off the top shelf and it fell to the ground and it's now in too many pieces to ship to you. So, 
so that was canceled. So I thought, I thought, you know, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you for for fessing right. up. You know, score one, score one for the bear. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, right. Exactly. So, so uh, Graham, at least one of them has been destroyed. So, um, so, but I ended up. Uh, buying one at auction, uh, both of them I got from eBay, but I bought one at auction and I bought one at, uh, for, you know, for a flat fee of, you know, both of these were, you know, are shipped under $20. So when I bought at auction, strangely enough, I bid $2 on a $1.99 opening bid and I won it. And Yay. I am so proud. Um, so, I have, so they kind of come in a couple of different flavors. Um, the one that Nick has, and I have one that's very close to it, um, are essentially small little plastic versions that look like an SLR, but they also kind of look like a rangefinder in that they have an offset window viewfinder, right? Well, mine actually even has a fake rangefinder window, so... It, it it has a full a fully formed fake rangefinder and a fake prism. So it's trying to be something that actually doesn't exist in the real world, both a you know full on traditional rangefinder camera and a, a single lens reflex. I mean there were there were attachments for early Leicas that allowed you to see through the lens, but you know, this is not what this is. This is somebody who just said, I'm gonna look at all the coolest cameras and mash it together <laughs> into this one new creation. And that's how they made the name of it. Uh, mine is a is a Nikona, so it's a, a mashing together of Canon and Nikon. And I think you have a Ninoka. Ninoka, uh, right? Yeah. And then I have the uh, so it, so the, both of these cameras are are pretty similar, and they're they're tiny little things. Um, uh, that's a good. That's a feature. Yes, that is a feature, and I'll and I'll talk a, a little bit about um, that one in a second. But I also bought one of the Olympias. Now, the Olympia was it might have been sold later in the process, but it is made to the size of and the general overall look of a uh, of the Canon EOS plastic. Um, SLRs, um, you know, of the nineties and, and aughts. Um, and it, it does a fairly quick mimicking of those. If you look at it so closely. So sort of a, a, sort of a puff, puffy shape, right. really camera like. Round. It's got a, it, it, it has, um, you know, uh, those early cannons had a, a grip on the right side that came out. Um, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit, and, and this has a grip and it even has batteries in the grip because this one ha goes beyond just looking like, um, an autofocus camera. It tries to mimic some of the functions. And one of the functions that it tries to mimic is it has a, it has a motor drive advance, which nice. actually seems to work really well. Uh, and it even has the. Does it make the cold? Does it make the cold? Yeah, sound? absolutely. And nice. the and the other thing, it doesn't make the doesn't make the cool mirror slap because it has no mirror. But um, but the other thing that it has is it has a loading that you, where you just pull the leader out far enough to get to the take up reel, and then you close the 
the camera and it advances it and takes up that film. Ah, that's like I that's like my I have the first uh built-in uh, electronic refine camera which is a Konica. Yeah. And and it has that same feature. It's like it's it's really meant sort of like as a labor saving kind of like or you know, attention saving right device and it's amazing that that actually functions on the plastic yeah, camera and and i'm actually yeah. really impressed with that function um and the other thing it has is it has a matching attached um uh flash that is on a you know it's it, it's on a light or it's got a um so is it uh, built in or is it no, about you? No, it's it's well what it does is it's got the the uh the bar that um attaches to the uh tripod mount and it comes out the side like it's a flash bar. You know or uh, that's oh, yeah. the, so that know, the flash mounts on the one side of the it, camera. It mounts on one side, it acts as a handle. Oh, um, nice. And the flash works and it is run by a hot shoe wired uh so it's got a it's got a like a, one of those old so like an like telephone. an extension cord an yeah. extension cord yeah yeah right. a spiral extension cord uh like we had on old telephones so right and they and they used those on they used those on all the first off camera flashes right. before they figured out radio remote and right. all that so yeah now, so not, that's pretty fancy yes and it's a, it's a single contact so it doesn't, you know, I mean, obviously it's not going to be electronic in, in, in any way, but it, I have tried it on other cameras and it works. So for my $1.99, I got That's a flash. So well, thank- there's, a, there's a working hot shoe on my Nikona as well. So, so that, that was impressive. I was not expecting that. And, and like the Nikona, your camera also has four apertures, right? Four. So, sort of. Mine has a fascinating mechanism. It goes from F6, F8, F11, and F16. But when you study it, even though it has those markings, it actually is a continuously variable aperture. So, Oh, really? Mine and, has and notches. A, Both of mine and have it's notches. A, mine is a two-bladed aperture. And one blade sliding past the other makes the teardrop-shaped aperture get smaller and smaller. <laughs> so this is going to be a real interesting part of this camera, is it has a very strangely shaped aperture. Um, and I think that may turn out to be like the singer, the, the, the well, one of the two biggest problems with the camera that need correcting is, or maybe not, maybe it's a feature, maybe we'll love the weird-shaped aperture. Um, the other thing is that it does have, inside a giant plastic cylinder, it has a tiny, tiny little single element meniscus lens so basically it's just a tiny magnifying glass in there and uh that's going to be another weak point on the camera but still it was exciting that it has a working hot shoe it has a film counter that works um for anything up to 36 shots it takes 35 millimeter the film advance is a little uh, thumb wheel which is makes a nice ratcheting sound and it's actually very fun to use and it's one thing i like about that is that it only advances the film so you can get double exposures real easy because the shutter every time you press the shutter button the shutter is a self-cocking shutter and it fires independent of the film advance so it's a great camera for multiple exposure um and on top of that you can you can advance the film and then you don't have to worry about whether the shutter's cocked or not because it's never it's never cocked so you could just you know, you don't have to, I always worry about 
when I advance the film on a camera where you've cocked a shutter, I think, oh, it's going to wear the spring down if I don't take another yeah. picture. It's a great way to sell film, you know. So this doesn't have that uh, fault. So there's a lot of positive things about the little thing. Right. And now mine does have, um, it cannot fire the shutter until the film the film has been advanced. That's Oh, the you know, my Nikon is actually right. It does have yeah. that feature. So how would I do it? I'll have to defeat that to do multiple exposures. You're yeah, right. We're it does have do, to that. do that. Now, okay. does, does it yours on the end say optical glass lens? Uh, actually says more than that. It says optical color glass lens. Oh my. Okay. I got the black and white version apparently. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it says color, but that doesn't mean that it's certainly uncoated. Yeah. I'm looking at that. That's certainly uncoated. So, Although, you know, you could probably just sprinkle a little bit of ash on there and get a similar effect. Yeah. What I love is um, there's a serial number or what looks like it's supposed to be a serial number printed on the on the end of the lens. And I'm guessing that every one of these had that same serial number because that doesn't matter. All right. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's check that. What's your serial number? My serial number is 746277. All right. I'm looking for... For, this is the Nikonon. The Nikonon. Yeah. And I'm, this is the Ninoka. Okay. Where's the serial number? Where did you see it? Oh, it's on the, on the lens. On the lens. On the end of the so lens. So mine is 746277. Ah, so is mine. We ah. have, wait, no, hold on. So the, Only one of these can be real and authentic. I think that you have the, I think that you have the counterfeit one. Oh, you do? So well, what, well, what? that makes mine more special then. Oh yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, yeah, and this does have a have a, 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 a hot shoe on it. So it's so one I'm of the few to, metal parts. I'm going to wind and fire this so that people can hear the, the quality mechanism. Okay. All right. Here we go. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And here's here's the same one. Yeah. There we go. Okay. So even even if the pictures don't come out, it'll, it's a satisfying camera to shoot. Right? right. Well, okay. And here's here are a couple of other things. Now it's got the four apertures, but the way that you change the aperture is by turning what you would expect would be the focus ring on the lens. Right. Yours does the same thing. Yes. It, yeah. It's a giant knobby thing that appears to be a focus yeah. lens. And at first, I was a little confused because. It has two sets of markings. Mine has 6, 8, 11, and 16. And yeah. they're in four different colors, as if there's going to be a depth of field right. uh, scale. But, of course, there isn't, <laughs> because the lens is fixed focus. Right. <laughs> anyway, there. while you're adjusting it, you could also look at an, an adjacent scale, which gives you sunny, half sun, uh, sun behind a cloud, and just cloud. Right. So, Also in those it. same colors. So and, while we're on the topic of exposure, yeah. mine, I actually measured the shutter speed and it's exactly one two hundredth of a second, which is quite fast for one of these little self-cocking shutters. And actually, right. I really like that because if you just get fast enough film, you can actually expect to get images that aren't blurry with it. So that's that's yeah. a good feature. Now, there is a problem with that because I'm not sure. I don't think this is a leaf shutter. So, let, yeah, I've got it open all the way. Is it a leaf or is it? No, it. it... Oh. oh, I would call mine a leaf shutter. It's well, probably I'm just only got to... one leaf, but it... <laughs> it's still a leaf shutter. 
<laughs> yeah, a, gu- a guillotine is a leaf because yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Uh, <laughs> so so it, it, the reason why I make that point is that it then needs you know uh, what's its uh, uh, flash sink right. Uh, so we're, well, we're, I'm going to have to try flash with oh, this. Oh, that's true. It's hard to believe that this thing sinks at a 200 of a second. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Right. So mine, well, maybe it does. mine tested at 1 350th. So apparently Ooh, mine's you're younger. Really, wow. Mine, you know, uh, well, you know, it might it might sink, though. I mean, that that's the whole point. It, even if it's only a two, it's probably a two-leaf design shutter. It right. still ought to be able to sink at a fast shutter speed. It should. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it works. Okay, um, I have left the Olympia in the other room, so I'm going to be out of microphone distance. So you talk about yours for a few minutes. For a minute. All right, sure. Well, so <clears throat> I don't know. I, I'm gonna. I shot. I'm in the middle of testing the camera by shooting a roll because I actually really like the thing. It's obviously a cheap plastic camera, but it has kind of a nice size and shape. It does have some things I can adjust and make myself feel like I'm doing something. You know, it has all the proper stuff. It has a solid-looking tripod mount. One thing that is funny about these cameras is that they probably are weightless, but they come, I've heard, I haven't opened mine up yet, but they apparently have a, a solid chunk of lead or some heavy metal in the bottom of the camera to make it feel like a, a substantial object and, and actually like kind of like that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm back. Um, and what... Uh, in fact, I would say that the Olympia is probably within a couple of ounces of a uh an equivalent um canon slr so yeah well they they took the amount of metal that you would use to make a camera and they just made it into a blob and stuck it in the middle of this right of this plastic thing right so okay so the um the olympia is very much like the Ninoka and what's yours again? Uh, Nikana. Nikana. Um, and no, uh, Nikonon. Nikonon. There we go. Nikonon. And and since they have the same serial number but different brands, I'm gonna say that they came from the same factory, um, or at least whoever, whatever factory they came from, they bought the mold or the uh, the plastic molds from the the same place. Now, um, okay, so the Olympia is very interesting in it has the i mean it really looks like a, an autofocus slr but it has a window to the side that is okay it 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 is lensed so i it is a smaller view so it gives me a wider angle view hmm. um but it says that it is a 50 millimeter lens so yeah, well, I, mine mine says it's a fifty millimeter lens too. Yeah, well, um, this is the this is the Olympia, and the thing about it is because it is, uh, I'm I'm just questioning. You know, I'm looking through this field of view, it yeah. looks quite a bit smaller than fifty. It even yeah. looks like the aspect ratio might be a little bit off. It doesn't yeah. quite look like a two <laughs> oh, to yeah. three ratio, and oh, I'm yeah, actually yeah. seeing the lens. You know, the lens is obscuring about. A quarter of the view, maybe maybe a fifth of the view. Wow. So, okay, so that's different because my Ninoka does not um, obscure the, the. I can't see the lens in it. So, so yeah. That, so the the corner of the rangefinder window on yeah. the Nikonon is touching the lens, so it's really close. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It is on this one too, but I can't see right. it in there for some reason. Um, are you wear, are you wearing glasses when you look through it? Uh, yeah, here let me do. Because it. it is something that we didn't discuss, but it's an issue. Oh, yeah. If you if you wear glasses when you look through a viewfinder, you need to have the viewfinder has to be designed to either give you a wider field of view, uh, so that you know the because when your eye isn't quite close enough to the to the little window in the back of the camera, you will you won't be able to see the whole viewfinder. Um, so the two solutions are either to design the viewfinder so that so-called eye relief is farther back from the camera so that you see the full view with your eye at a little distance or uh, the viewfinder has an oversized view um, and those two things are important to people who wear glasses also the material um, if your if your viewfinder port has uh, a, any kind of hard or sharp material on it, like metal it can scratch your glasses too right right um so okay so um let's listen to here, yeah. Let's listen to the Olympia, and this is its shutter. So, I, I'm sure Nick, you didn't hear that because I put it. Oh no, right I did. I heard it. I heard so, it. So yeah. So it is. Um, it, it 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 mimics very well that. Um, it has. It, it does have the oddest thing in the world. So. So that was the advance. That was that the I advance. Heard. Yeah, that yeah. was well. It's the shutter. The shutter release. So the and shutter the triggers the advance. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the um, okay. So it has two viewfinders, which is just really odd, and it has like side by side on the back. No, there is one over on the far left at the top where you would expect a viewfinder uh, for a. Um, like a rangefinder, range right? right? For a rangefinder, but it also has in the prism area. It has a little round hole in the front of the prism, and on the top is I would say, and it's almost square. It has a ground glass viewfinder. No way. Yes, absolutely. A waist level finder. So it has a built-in waist level and it, yes. eye level viewfinder. And wow, the, the thing sophisticated of, camera. Yes. I, the, I mean that's a rare, very rare and unusual set of features. And really this is where I'm going where I'm going with this. I'm impressed with these cameras. I'm impressed with the with the level of detail somebody went to in the engineering and the design in order to scam people. All right, now I now I'm starting to suspect that that Graham's whole tirade was just some sort of social engineering experiment. By denigrating these cameras so severely, he knew that soft-hearted people like ourselves that's right would, would then expect them to be terrible and then fall in love with them and I'm become thinking, addicted to them when they actually discovered that they aren't quite as bad as he said. Absolutely, I think it's a plot. I do. And now here's another theory on this. My theory is that he has purchased many of these and he is he is trying to drive up the price mm -hmm. so that he can unload them all on eBay to people who want to smash them with hammers. It's so, probably a syndicate. It's probably not just Graham. This is probably like some sort of worldwide conspiracy. Right. I mean I'm I sure I'm sure Aid might be in on it, but never the lovely Rachel, right? Okay. <laughs> so um anyway, uh so the the thing that is okay, so there are a couple of things about this. It has a um, a window on the top that shows the frame number. 
Now, I shot a 24 exposure Fuji 200 um, roll, but the frame number never got above four. So I'm hoping it's broken. Which, that's the Olympia one? This is the Olympia. Now, yeah, so the one on the Nikonon, it, it you just set it to zero when you load the film, and it tells you how many shots you've taken, which is nice because you don't, yeah, it's it's a, actually a good simple system. It's easy to figure out. This has a zeroing. Mine goes from zero to 36, so I just turn the thing uh -huh. to zero, and then every time I fire, it advances one more you know, mark on the scale. Really? It's a, oh. ni a nice-looking uh, window. Actually. Okay, so, so mine automatically zeroes to S, and then... I advance it a couple of, you know, just a normal couple of frames to get to oh, one. Oh, but that, see, that's because it has the power winder thing. No, this so, is, th no, this is my, uh, uh, Ninoka. So, oh, so that's, so it's very interesting. Even though they have the same lens, there are quite a few differences. Yes, there are quite a few differences. That's mine, interesting. Mine's better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think a 200 shutter speed is, is yeah. an advantage. Yeah. So, so, um, this is, now, there are a couple of things um, uh, about this setup. Now, it really, if you were to have one of these, I think, on a TV show where you put this person in the back, okay, you could you could pull this off as a prop, uh, it, you know, on a TV show or a, or a movie where if it's far enough back, you know, this would work as a prop. But as a camera, it... It, I think it has some good functionality. Now, the flash is indicated in the manual as a fill flash for outdoor. It is not an indoor flash. Now, that's probably because it has a minimum aperture of 6.8. Um, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but if so, you just, you know, get some fast film and push it, you could probably use it. I could. Just oh, fine. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, no doubt. No doubt. I well, so, that. so, all right. So you're falling in love with the camera. Well, that's one way to save them from, from the bear. But we also did have our, a challenge where we were meant to modify them. So much as, much as I like this camera, I am considering trying to upgrade it. Some of the ideas I have, because the lens is probably going to be its weak point. Uh, so one, and that maybe the peculiar aperture. So that whole thing, could be sawn off and I could glue on some sort of mount uh, for a more of a real lens. So we'll have to look into that. Now, now part of it is that I'm going to say that the, uh, I did a little bit of outside the camera measuring and the flange focal distance on this camera is about 35 millimeters. Is that the, the one that looks like mine? Yes. Yeah. In fact, actually, they're, they're both about the same because I don't think that they're... Um, they're too wildly different. Um, but, um, that, um, so, I mean, I, that would give us plenty of options for mounting something on the front. Oh yeah. Very workable. No problem with it. No mirror. And we've got already yeah. got a viewfinder. We've now the only catch though is where's the shutter? Let's the see. If, the shutter. If I open up the back. Yeah. Oops. That's not a great idea when there's film in the camera. All right. <laughs> so I'll have to wait till I'm done shooting. Um, the shutter appears to be well. It's behind the lens. It's behind the glass of the lens. Whether it's in the barrel of the lens or not, it's pretty far out there. Yeah, and um, so uh, 
So yeah, we might have to we might have to put on a on a lens shutter combination. Yep, that um, we'll be forced to use a more sophisticated setup, or maybe design it so that there is no need for a. Sh- well, you'd have to have some kind of a shutter. I guess you'd just have to go to the other stream and use a really slow film with it. So yeah, we'll we just have to that. see. Um, it could be a pinhole, but I I really like to make it into more of a proper camera. So we'll yeah, no, I'm it. with you on that. I, I I think the logical thing it, with these is to make them into pinholes because not yeah I mean but I but I want to go beyond that as well. Um, mm-hmm. So but the 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 thing that is kind of telling me that pinhole is the optimum solution is the fact that the film plane is actually a curved film plane. Now, um, that is... And how is that? Well, is is yours not curved? Um, uh, you know, now, you can't open it. I can't um, open it right now, but, but I'll tell you. Um, well, the back of the camera has a gentle curve on it, but I don't really know if the film gate is yeah, film... going to let it... The film there, I think there's is... a pressure. I remember. I seem to remember a pressure plate. So. Yes, and it's metal, yeah. and there and is, is it. A, is it curved? It, it is curved. Oh, um, okay. And it's even dimpled, which is really nice. <laughs> no, well, but that that takes... you mean to support the film, so it's not scraping along on the. On no, the no. The dimpling has to do with uh, light reflections uh, coming oh. off of the. Uh, uh, Leslie Lazenby on the FPP talked about it about I don't know about a year ago. Oh, that's see. These are really sophisticated little things. And that's what I'm saying. These are not schmuck cameras. Well, you might be a schmuck if you bought one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I can see how. Well, okay. So on the that's on the Ninoka, it's dimpled, but on the um, Olympia, it is not. It's it's more of a just uh, a rough surface. Um, but yeah, let me. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I think that you're, I, I think that you are right on with the idea, uh, of taking the lens off and using the body. Now I have two of these, so I might do one. I, well, okay. Yeah. I mean, the idea would be maybe just separate the two. So I'm just going to say, ideally, ideally we preserve both both parts. I don't um, think that, that would that's... be the ideal, but it's going to be hard. Yeah, I don't well, think that's. It all depends on the yeah. how we cut the hole. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that's actually kind of nice about the Olympia is when you change the aperture, it the there when you turn the turn what would be the focus ring on an autofocus lens, it um, it changes the aperture. But the front of the lens moves outward um, as you, you know, as the aperture goes, uh, you know, opens up. So when it's 16, the lens is flush. And when it's at 6.3, this front uh, moves out. So there's actually a helical in here that I can steal from maybe another camera. And you don't think it's actually doing anything? No, yeah, well, I know it's not doing anything from focus because it's not the the focusing lens that's moving. This camera has, like, a clear, what would be essentially a UV filter um, out at the front. And um, that uh, it, that moves in and out. Um, so, 
that would be um, the thing to to uh, to maybe. Keep. Man, I am holding the solution in my hand. You you before all this happened, you sent me a link to a a toy camera lens, a Lomo lens for sale in Lithuania for like fifteen dollars or something, and I just went ahead and ordered it because it really? has a shutter. It has a shutter. It oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it has a helical, and now I'm holding it up. So it's a complete lens with everything I need. It has aperture, shutter, and helical, and it is the exact same diameter as the Nikon wow. lens. Okay, it's it's meant to go right on this body. <laughs> so the lens that he's talking about is um, it's a, it's Lomo a Helios. Lens. Helios. No, well, this says this says Lomo on it. Oh yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In okay, acrylic, but lettering. it's a T forty four, right? It's a T43. T43. Okay. So it's a 43 millimeter lens. It has uh, aperture adjustment on the front of F4 through F16. It actually has, I don't know why, but it has a way that you can indicate that there's a scale of ISO on the front of the lens, which yeah, doesn't connect to anything. I, I don't know yeah. what that is. I'm with you. Um, it's a, uh, but it, the one thing that's peculiar about it, which was a little bit of a setback, is that the shutter, which goes from 250th to B, and I haven't tested it yet, but it feels like it works. The the trigger is on the back of the lens, which normally is a is like a, an issue because most camera designs you need to be able to get your finger on it to fire the shutter. This one, there's like a lever on the back of the lens that fires the shutter. But here's the thing: there's a shutter button on the Nikonon, directly right above, above where that lever goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that this is a, uh, you know, uh, we can make this work. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a joint Chinese Russian um, uh, big long plan to bring right. us down in the West. Mm, you think? Yeah, no, well, yeah, but I think we're going to win. Um. <laughs> well, I actually don't think that this canon is going to make any difference one way or another to any world events but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's uh i think it's i'm really kind of i'm really kind of uh, thrilled that i am i'm holding the perfect lens to replace the uh and 43 is nice it's a little closer to normal it'll make the viewfinder maybe the viewfinder will crop too much but it's certainly the right focal length anyway yeah 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 and i, I and i let me grab my oh yeah okay so that was from uh a Shmina, um uh, Smina uh, 8M is what this is um, from. That's that's the the camera it came from. You know, and, I and I noticed that it attaches to the body by screws that would come from inside the camera. Yep. And yep. I'm just wondering if when we take these things apart, if now there isn't going to be, so we'll have to create some kind of uh, some sort of system. mounting right. system, but that should be really easy. It's just going to be a little rectangle of metal with some threaded holes in it, and yeah. uh, or no, just regular holes, and you put a little little screw through, and Bob's your uncle. I like oh. it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so we are going to we have we have um I don't know what to say. We 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 put our money, our hard earned two dollars, where our mouths are. And um, we are going to make an attempt at improving these and making them worthy cameras to save from Graham's hammer. 
That's it. Um, and that is that's our our battle. So anybody who wants to join us, um, certainly, um, you know, you you are more than more than welcome. Uh, so yeah, so, and we're we're saving these these terrible cameras by making them more usable. Um, I suppose you know you could take this challenge to any level. You could, for instance, take a really fancy camera and try and improve it. I mean, that would probably be valid as well. But you know, anyway, we can keep any of this old equipment functioning going forward. It's going to turn out to be useful. Nick, you have any books for us this week? Yeah, so another book that's extremely useful. So there was a there was a classic series of books that Ansel Adams produced, three volumes about the camera, about the print, about the negative. And it it was a, a good introduction to photography, but really very you know, it's getting to be a little old and very much oriented towards Ansel Adams' preferences. And a bunch of people put together a different book called The Ansel Adams Guide, book one, book two, but it's not written by Ansel Adams. It has a lot of information and material from him in it and a lot of his photographs, but it's a much more recent book with a lot more modern processes described. And it's a more of a general survey of every kind of way there is to make a photograph with analog systems. Uh, I think it does mention some digital stuff at the very end of the book, but it's kind of the the, the penultimate development of analog going through all sorts of different processes and types of cameras and ways to print and it's a, a really great series so it's the Ansel Adams Guide Basic Techniques of Photography by John P. Schaefer and very very useful uh, for camera builders and users alright so um, we've you know uh, we've already talked about what we're, we're kind of working on um I I'm also formulating an eight by ten or an eight by ten a four by five point and shoot that I am uh, I I think we'll we'll hold off on that until um, our next episode when I get a little bit deeper into it um, I've uh, I've 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 got to really think through how that's going to work mm-hmm. uh, but I, I I'm not even sure whether it's going to be wood or um, printed plastic so we'll we'll see what that is um did you any letters or emails or anything um this week uh no i don't have any uh didn't get any emails and yeah. and i'm mike i haven't i haven't actually been doing much constructing of cameras but i have been fiddling with parts and thinking through okay. some some stuff and uh the uh the next thing that i've been fooling around with is i found a uh a, a big clunky old Ilex shutter that's a number three, so not going to work with my Mercury system. But I've been wanting to use it. It's not a very fast shutter, but it gives me bulb and time and some slow speeds. Um, and because of that, I think it might be really good for building a, an extra fancy uh, lens board pinhole setup so that I can use a, a cable release to do those kind of difficult intermediate exposures in the, you know, kind of close to one second. Uh, it's nice to have a shutter for that instead of just 
uh, waving a lens cap around or whatever. Um, so that's something I want to uh, fool with, and I've been playing with it. Just going to mount a ready-made pinhole in the in the shutter, and then mount that on a, a lens board so I can use it as a kind of high-end pinhole setup. All right. Um, now I do. Uh, I just realized as soon as I asked you about. Uh letters or emails that uh, Jonas um, had emailed me and I'd seen it, but I had not looked at it. Um, And he just says, um, by the way, good books mentioned in the last podcast. I have the cameras from Daguerreotypes to Instant Pictures in Swedish. Mm. So, um, and he also says, and he also has the collecting and using classic cameras. Uh, He's he's, uh, taken out more than once from the local library. So, uh, all right, um, and I will respond to you. Uh, it's he sent this on a Friday, and it's Sunday night. I'm 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 a slacker. I mean, I don't have any other way of saying that. Uh, I have a couple. Well, you still got time to email him before this episode. Oh, comes right, out. You'll, right. You'll be all right. Right, exactly. Um, uh, so, uh, okay, I have a couple of shout outs, and they're shout outs and um, attentions to Kickstarter. So. Um, there, both of these, if you're, if you listen to the other, um, film photography podcast, you've heard about these, but there are two four by five cameras on Kickstarter right now. Um, one of them is, um, uh, the standard four by five. And what it is, is it's a rail camera, uh, and it's 3d printed, but it also has some metal parts. And you can, with this one, you can get, um, a, uh, you can get it as a kit or you can get it as uh, a fully man, you know, fully built camera. Uh, and you get a choice of, uh, colors of the, um, of the bellows. Uh, but it's, um, it, it's a monorail camera, but it only has, uh, controls for the front. Uh, so so it's I would imagine standard. it's rel- relatively light because most monorail cameras are quite heavy, right? Um, old-fashioned ones. So if this is plastic, it might actually be kind of interesting to have a, a lightweight version of that, right? And it does. So look- you're saying only the which standard moves the front? The, only the front standard. Uh, so is from what gosh, I, can tell. I wonder if you could get two of them and uh, figure out how to attach the film holder to the you know. You could. There, the other, it's it's, yeah. it's not expensive. Um, now there, as I'm doing, as I'm saying this, and we're recording this. It's 105 minutes to go. Uh, it's $38,600 of $15,000. So, oh, so it's they, they made it. They made it. Yeah. In fact, out, it just clicked up. Somebody else ordered. Um, so uh, the cheapest one is uh, $320 for the kit. $320 for the kit, which I think is really reasonable. Um, at, well, if, it, if it's... If it, does turn out to be a really lightweight thing that you right. can use in the field. It's a good deal. If it's if it's just like any other uh, rail camera, I mean, you can get old rail cameras for a lot less than that. So, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. you're right. So, um, however, the the trick with those, like I have one that was really 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 cheap, uh, but <laughs> then you need lens boards and other things, bellows <laughs> yeah. and things to right. attach to it. And that's where you end up spending money. So and if this is a fairly complete system with inexpensive lens boards, then yeah, yeah. it would be a really, really well, good deal. Well, it accepts, uh, it says it accepts Linhoff Wista lens boards. Um, it'll do 100 to 300 millimeter lenses. You can do shorter if you do a recessed board. 
Um, front standard. Okay, here it is. Front standard uh, rise fall, thirty five millimeters uh, for rise, forty five millimeters for fall. Um, shift thirty two millimeters each way, and it has swing and tilt. So that's a full. That's, that's, that's a good. full set, right? The rear standard it has shift uh, fifty five millimeters each way. So and swing. Okay, so it's not it's not mm, that's quite a bit. So it just it just doesn't have tilt and rise most and fall. Field, most field cameras have similar uh, yeah, options. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so with with those two you can you can affect what anything that you want. Um it's just that the you know, you're you're maybe a little bit limited, but you know, it depends and on also the And also my my yeah. other question is does it focus by moving the front standard or by moving the rear standard? I cannot tell. I think that yeah. you could do it with either one. Oh that's good. Um but I can't uh I can't really tell that. And it All might right. say here, I'm I'm just doing it um Well it's pretty, pretty common quickly. for field cameras to be front yeah. standard focusing because it's just a practical way to set up the machinery. But right. But I made mine, uh, my homemade one is, is rear standard focusing because it does, it, it changes the geometry less when, while you're focusing. So it's easier to focus at the last minute and not, and not have to rearrange all your right. settings. Um, and that can be a real help. Yeah. So, so, so that one's, uh, that one's going to be made, you know, um, it's going to, it's going to go. Um, the other one is, uh, and this one has 17 days to go. So by the time you hear this. You can still get in on this. And this is the camera dactyl. And the camera dactyl is, um, imagine, um, say, um, Cambo and Fisher-Price getting together and making Oh, a I saw those. Yeah, those are cool. They are, it, it's a field camera as opposed to a monorail. And it looks like it has full... Full, yeah, I'm looking at this, and it looks like it has full um, uh, movements, both front and back. Hmm. Um, and but it's it's also so this is a, a 3D printed camera like the other one, but it comes in all sorts of fun colors, like uh, you would expect from Fisher Price. Um, well, so is, isn't that just something you can do by buying different plastic? So. Right. Well, I mean, the the idea is that he has, um, and I should mention their names here, and I will in a second. Um, there, I think, are nine colors to choose from. I saw it somewhere here. Uh, but, you know, uh, like yellow and pink, in, and, and these are really vibrant colors. Uh, purple, green, uh, light blue, medium blue. Um, and, uh, let's see. I, yeah, I mentioned them all and white and black, uh, and kind of an orangey, um, red is, is one of the colors as well, but they also, um, cover the bellows with all sorts of fun fabrics. And this is, this is a little bit scary to me because these are the, and he shows a picture with the different fabrics, including a unicorn with rainbow wings. Okay. Um, oh wait, no, it's just, I'm sorry. It's just a flying horse. There's no horn on this unicorn, but, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. So it's not real, you know, so it says, these are the fabrics that we have at the local fabric store. Their inventory changes. Some of these options will be replaced by other choices. Ah, (laughs) so that's what your bellows is going to be covered in are, are these, uh, very interesting. 
Pajamas. Fabrics. Yeah. Pajamas maybe for a for an eight-year-old girl. Um, and That's well, perfect. But here's, you know, here are some uh, Mexican Day of the Dead skulls in some other fabrics. So, I mean, it's not really... Uh, okay, some of these things would be hideous combinations, in my opinion. <laughs> but, but I mean, if you... You know, you can also do it all in one color. So you could do, um, you know, a full black color. And I love this. He's, you know, the subtitle on this is Black is the Old Orange. Um, so, well, so that's good. So yeah. these are, these allow you to have, you know, so, something appropriate for all sorts of different occasions. That's right. Great. Exactly. So, so, um, you know, look at a uh, camera dactyl still be there. Um, but these are actually cheaper. So the first production batch and the second production batch are two twenty five per camera and they come assembled. Uh, and you get to choose a color for each of the 10 groups a bellows fabric from what's available <laughs> and a les- lens board hole size. You have to tell them, tell them that information. So they give you a lens board with this one. Now nice. um, it's not a, um, the standard has a um, graph lock back four by five graph lock back. This uh, does not, it seems to be a proprietary system uh, using rubber bands Oh, so it's got a sheet film holder that only fits that camera. Yeah, and it's and I it, and it doesn't look like it's going to be easily modified to to roll film. So um, yeah, so there were ten people who got it at two hundred ten bucks, um, but there's still plenty available at the two hundred twenty five dollar um, rate. Now um, this one only had a goal of twenty five hundred dollars. It's at six thousand. So, um, that one, they're both going to be, um, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're both going to make as, as we would say, um, it's Ethan Moses who's doing the camera dactyl. And now the standard is, I'm sure he's gotten plenty of jokes since this has come out, but the standard's done by Drew Nikonowitz. So, so... (laughs) <laughs> you know, if your name was Cambo Awitz or Wista Awitz, you know, um, yeah, anyway, I'm sure. Well, that might be bad. Nikonowitz sounds good. Nikonowitz, yeah, exactly. Um, although that really rolls off the tongue very well. So, uh, so you know, uh, more power to both of you. I hope you are both very successful with these um, and you don't run into any production uh, issues that are not very easily taken care of. So uh, I'm I'm hoping that the you know the the people go out and start um, really really working with these um, the the camera dactyl I think goes down to 65 um, uh, millimeter lens oh it says uh, the bellows accommodates about a 90 to 300 um, but I think again with the uh, oh it, it it comes with the board so uh, right. so I can't use my sixty five on it. So. Well, and it, it it's hard to say whether these cameras can be adapted for really wide lenses. You right. need that you need to be able to fit. Uh, you need to be able to get the standards very close together and right. use some sort of special bag bellows or something, and maybe recessed lens boards and all of that yeah. can be hard to arrange. Uh, you know that even the crown graphic was considered to be pretty impressive because it could go to a 65 millimeter lens but it only achieved that by having the whole um standard holding board actually fold down at an angle so 
Okay. That's why a crown graphic has the ability to tilt the lens. It's actually not really for movements. It's because when you flip that board down and then tip back the lens, it becomes parallel to the uh, film plane again and lets you shoot really wide lenses that otherwise would get the end of the camera in the picture. Right. So, okay. So how do people get a hold of you? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. You yell, you open the door. <laughs> hey, Nick. Uh, you can get a hold of him, Nick, at uh, homemadecamera.com. You can get a hold of me at Graham at homemade, ho, blah, Graham at homemadecamera.com. Um, we also have our Flickr group, uh, which is Homemade Camera Flickr group. And I'm about to cough, so you continue on. So I always want to remember to thank Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios, who made the, both composed and produced the music that we use in the show. And also, we are part of the Film Podcasting Network. So if you have a podcast and you want it listed, go to filmpodcastnetwork.com. Or if you really have enough time on your hand to listen to another one of these, go there for a listing of some other shows. Thank mm-hmm. you.